You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everybody. Uh, good afternoon and uh, welcome to The Washington Post. I'm Amy Gardner. I'm a national reporter covering voting issues and election interference criminal cases. And uh, I would like to say welcome to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Welcome to The Washington Post. Thank you so much. Um, it's a true honor to be here. Many people know I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so I grew up was reading the Washington Post. In fact, my dad would make me do current event stories out of articles <laughs> in the Washington Post. So let's just say this is a full circle moment. It's a real honor that um, of all the great names you have here, not today only, but also last year, that I would be included in that. So thank you for having me. And in fact, your staff was so excited about this that there had to be a little bit of a lottery to come with you today. Is that correct? We don't do lotteries. Um, <laughs> but what we do do is I uh, opened up an essay. We knew just due to budget reasons, I thought that this would be a great opportunity for people that were interested in leadership in my office to uh, tell me why they were interested in leadership, why they thought a conference such as this they would be able to learn from. Um, we had more than 30 entries, uh, and they wrote their personal stories that were phenomenal, not just where they've been, but where they see themselves going. And I have 10 members of my staff that won that essay contest, and they are here Stand with up. me today. So let's talk about Rico. <laughs> let's talk about it. You've built a record using Georgia's anti-racketeering law uh, extensively. And uh, it's, you know, people know it for prosecuting gangs and mafia. Uh, and you're making history using it to try to prosecute a former president of the United States. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for you to uh, tell us if there were one thing that you would like the public to understand about RICO, what would it be? Um, what I wouldn't want the public to understand is that what I have found, I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years now, and most of that time has been as a criminal prosecutor. I personally have tried well in excess of 100 cases, and what I have learned in my experience as an attorney is that juries are very, very smart, and they want to know the entire story. And what RICO does is let you tell the entire story. It lets you tell about every member that joined a criminal enterprise. And so I um, am known for bringing a large RICO indictment against the Atlanta Public Schools where we indicted 35 people. And that is really where I really learned RICO. And so when I was elected the district attorney of Fulton County, one thing I did was have my staff trained on this statute, how it could be used, when it is appropriate to use. Um, and so currently in my office, we have 11 indicted RICO cases. I'm investigating three more. Um, and we've used it from everything from white collar crime to human trafficking to gangs to um, any time someone has joined a criminal enterprise. <laughs> uh, on to the news. Uh, last night, my colleague Holly Bailey and I uh, published excerpts from video statements made by the four of the defendants in the Fulton case who have pleaded guilty. Um, was it a surprise to you that those videos got out? And, and also, it might not be a bad thing for you to explain to the public what is a proffer statement. 
Um, so my team and um, the particular case that those got out, we had already filed um, to have a protective order where discovery in the case would not get out. Um, so surprising, no, disappointing, yes. In fact, today uh, from here, I made sure I wasn't late for this event, but I was with my team making sure that an emergency motion got filed so that that motion we had already filed gets heard immediately um, because it. I think it's, I'm not happy that it was released and that you and your colleague got to do your story. But, <laughs> but, but that- We don't always agree. <laughs> that's okay. But that, that being said, um, I think that it's, it is important for people to understand in general, and so we'll do it in the, in the context of Atlanta Public Schools. In Atlanta Public Schools, we indicted 35 people, and they were everyone from the superintendent to section superintendents to principals to teachers, because all of them had played a part in this criminal enterprise. And um, of those, 20 pled, more than 20, 21, 22 of them pled. And as each one of them pled, they made a proffer. And so what was important about that proffer is I think it's important when a defendant pleads. Uh, one of the reasons that prosecutors will give a less sentence when someone pleads is because it's very important that you take responsibility for what you did, right? So there is that. I took responsibility for it. But you also then have to admit and confess as to what you did, what was your part, and who did you do it with. And so... And it leads you up the ladder in it some cases. It often leads you all the way up the ladder, and it tells All the, the way full, up the ladder. All the way. I want to get to the top of the ladder. The, the, okay. the DA in Fulton County always want to get to the top of the ladder. So it leads you all the way to the top of the ladder, um, making sure that everyone that is involved in the criminal enterprise is held responsible. So often in criminal cases, you will see, you know, what people would think of, as you said, commonly, you know, the street boys that are selling the dope. But who is running those young men that are selling the dope. And so if you use RICO, you can often get the whole chain and not just hold the people at the bottom responsible. Um, one of the most common criticisms that you hear about this big case uh, on election interference in Fulton County is how sprawling it is. Um, here in Washington, Special Counsel Jack Smith, uh, his election interference investigation is, has a single defendant, Donald Trump. Um, yours has originally had 19, 41 criminal counts, 98 pages. Our own columnist, Ruth Marcus, asked the question in an opinion column uh, in August when the indictment came. Uh, is this one too many? Can you address concerns that this, this case is so sprawling that it's, it's going to be difficult to see to the end? Um, well, I won't answer anything about this case specifically. As you know, I won't answer anything about any open case that my office is prosecuting. Um, but I think that's an uninformed opinion. Um, in my office, as I told you, we have many RICO indictments. Um, I certainly have RICO indictments that are bigger than 19. Um, I think I have two with 28 defendants right now. Um, we are capable of doing it. In Atlanta Public Schools, I was the lead prosecutor. I put 12 people at the table. The jury was able to decipher that evidence. They were able to make decisions. 11 Seven of those people were found guilty. One was acquitted, which lets you know that the jury was able to look at each individual's responsibility and hold them responsible. And so I, I don't think that 28 or 35 or 19 or 8 is that's who got involved in the criminal enterprise. They deserve to be charged. In fact, they earned it. <laughs> I want to switch over and talk a little bit more about 
the personal side of your life. You talk a lot about your dad. You mentioned at the top, growing up here, uh, uh, your dad raised you a prominent lawyer here in DC. Um, I kind of think it's fair to say that you had a girl dad before that became a hashtag. Absolutely. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what was so special <laughs> about that relationship and, um, and how it shaped who you are today as a lawyer, as a parent, as a person. So the first thing is I want people to notice that chain because I was a latchkey kid. Because uh, my daddy was a lawyer. He used to say everybody in the neighborhood had a key to our house because I kept losing the key. Um, that being said, um, he is my foundation. Um, one of the things that people know or don't know is my father was a Black Panther. And so um, he tells me when he was time for him to take the bar that one of the questions they ask you is, have you ever been arrested? And that he had been arrested so many times in so many different states that all he could do was list the states that he had been arrested in. <laughs> he didn't know all of the times that he had been arrested. Some people think that that is like some symbol of hate, but it is not. Um, what he often tells me is that the reason that he went to law school was when they would get arrested for protesting and doing other things, it was always white lawyers that came and defended them and made sure that they got out of jail and that they were able to carry on with their lives. Um, and that is what brought his interest into going to, into being a lawyer. Um, he never talked about the people that did ugly and awful things to him. Obviously, I know the stories. I know the story of him being arrested in Louisiana for being an inn on a sunny day. I know that story. But it's never about the hate of the person that did that, but rather the lawyer that came to defend him. And so what he has taught me from a very, very small child is that everyone is entitled to some dignity. And that when I am looking at cases and anyone that should report to me, that it is important that we know that everyone involved in that scenario, the person that is charged, the victim, the witness who's also victimized by seeing that crime, the law enforcement community that is in that case, all of them are entitled to dignity. And so as we approach cases in my jurisdiction, as long as I sit as a district attorney, um, that lesson of everyone being entitled to some dignity and everyone having value, it must carry through. I tell my staff often, you know, I'm not into firing people, but should I find out that you treated someone in a way that was disrespectful because they don't have your level of education or your socioeconomic status, it'll be your last day in my office. Wow. Uh, We've talked also about being working moms, uh, and but you're also a working single mom, like your dad, single dad. Uh, and you've talked about how you're not sure you believe in the women can have it all approach to um, career. And I wonder if you, this room is filled with people who would love to hear your thoughts, especially younger women who are just starting out on the sacrifices and the choices that you sometimes have to make. So I do believe women can have it all. But what I don't um, believe is in um, this fantasy land that I find that some young people are living in. The reality is that uh, <laughs> success. Could you be a little more direct, please? <laughs> uh, uh, success comes at a price. And that's the reality. And, and success comes by earning it. You don't just get to be the high profile anything without 
earning it. And so, you know, I did raise two little girls on my own. They are the thing that I am the most proud of. Um, they still stress me out, but I, and I, <laughs> I love them dearly. But the reality is, you know, I was a trial lawyer. Sometimes that meant I'm at the office 10, 11 o'clock at night. I always made sure I had a couch in my office because sometimes dinner was McDonald's and we slept on the couch. If that's what it required to do the job excellently, I would have loved to have been home or had a husband that was helping out, but I was divorced. That was a decision to make. Um, and um, it was hard and it, it was not easy. And so this fantasy land that it's gonna be easy is not true. I remember when my babies were young, I brought them to court with me one day and uh, one of them wrote on a judge's table cause I had them in the back with like, uh, ink that wouldn't erase, you know? <laughs> because mommy's gotta be in court to do the job and they six years old. And so there are sacrifices that come and work-life balance, the law is probably not the profession you wanna go in. The law is a jealous mistress. <laughs> and to be excellent at it, she requires some time. Newspapers too. <laughs> um, what would your daughter say to that answer that you just gave, do you think? Um, I'll tell you a funny story about one of my daughters. Uh, so recently, my youngest daughter decided that she was going to switch college. So I know about college, I've been. I gave her some advice that I, I did not think that that was a wise decision. And I didn't think it was a wise decision because you're going to lose credits. When you go from one college to the other, you're gonna make this trip longer, you're gonna cost me more money. <laughs> um, so I did not want her to do that, but she insisted. And so we had a conversation about, okay, well, decisions come with consequences, but you're 20 something years old, so let's make this decision. So she makes a decision. She tells me she's talked to the counselor. I know she ain't talked to the counselor. She wanna do what she wants to do. So she gets to the school and she's there about seven weeks and she goes and has this conversation with the counselor and the counselor tells her, you're gonna lose 40 credits. So now she calls me and she's hysterical, she's crying, she's, and I'm calm. We already had this conversation. <laughs> so I'm on the phone and I'm listening to her. All I'm doing is calculating how many more months of rent I got to pay. But uh, otherwise, I'm really calm listening to her. And I said, you know, we had a conversation about consequences and this is the consequence you have to pay for your decision. And she told me you have zero emotional intelligence. <laughs> wow. That's... So, so I guess that's what she would say. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, well, this is a segue from family back to the job. What's it like to receive so many threats, not just you, but your family? Um, do you take them seriously? How seriously? Did you expect it? Um, I knew when I was making the endeavor into several cases um, that those cases were against high profile individuals. And there is this reality, there's one thing that I find very sad. I am praised a lot for the work that I'm doing and I, I thank people for that praise. But it's really we're at a sad place in society when people do not expect Lady Justice to be blind and that she will do her job. And so it is um, everyone is, should be protected by the law, but everyone is also held accountable in the law. 
And so I understood when I was making these endeavors that I would be threatened. Um, did I know in a matter of a couple of months it'd be a hundred and something threats? No. Did I suspect that when the threats would came, so many of them, um, the nature of them would be so racist and that this country still had that much kind of venom for just the fact that I was a black woman. In the last three years, I've been called the N-word so many times, I couldn't even think to count well, you know, and how many a, times. And there's a new euphemism out there for you, isn't there? Many of them. The election rigor? Yeah, I, I have heard that and yeah. so many other things it's that are there. just um, very, very ugly things. Yep. And it is sad that we are at that place in society. It is sad that people think that threatening me or anyone around me is going to uh, do anything. It's not going to do anything. We're going to keep doing business as usual. Um, but I have definitely made changes to the way I live my life. Um, that is hard. You know, I can't just go out with my girlfriends and have a drink tonight or any night because I have to have so much security um, so much of the time. So I'm but human. But you still make it to courtside at, uh, at the NBA game sometimes, don't you? Yeah, but I, luckily my dignitary team think that's a perk. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, if you were speaking to a room full of people who, who criticize you for being a liberal Democrat who is making prosecutorial decisions purely based on politics, what would you try to say to them to convince them otherwise? And, um, and I think this is an opportunity for you to talk about your sort of uh, philosophy about the law and democracy. Um, one, I think if anyone checked my record, they would just find that that's completely inaccurate. Um, I used to tell my campaign manager that I'm nobody's uh, candidate, nobody's prosecutor. And the reason I said that, and I'm attacked from both the left and the right, um, is because I do believe everyone should be held accountable. I do believe... Um, if you just look at my office, I, I am a prosecutor's prosecutor. I, I will put you in jail for life and have a real good night's sleep about it. If you have hurt someone in my community, if you've decided that you are the one that should take someone's life. But also, if you look at my office, I'm I think the only office in the United States where I run a year-long program in the classroom where we're teaching children other ways to do things. Mm -hmm. I also have one of the leading conviction integrity units where we're looking at old sentences and making sure that they're fair. I also have just paired up with Morehouse Medicine where we're going to look at mental health and how that played in and giving people a second chance in that way. And so I am a holistic prosecutor, one that um, does not mind prosecuting people and making sure that they are held accountable, but also does not mind um, where it is appropriate having people sent to diversion programs. The reality is this. People have to believe in their criminal justice system. And so it's sad that people think that when you prosecute people that they idolized or that they think are somehow special, all of a sudden they would like to put these names on you. But the reality is, if you don't want to be prosecuted for a crime in Fulton County, don't come in my county and commit one. Okay, this is also perilously close to the case at hand, but I'm gonna do it. Um, <laughs> Uh, speaking of special counsel Jack Smith here in D.C., you have said publicly in the past that there has not been any meaningful contact between your two offices. Is that still true? So I'm not going to comment on that question or other questions about an open case. And I think this is a good 
educational place so people can understand sure. why um, prosecutors, because they get frustrated with prosecutors that we do not comment on cases. If I was to comment on any open case, um, it would be a reason to conflict my office off. And it's really inappropriate because I don't want to impugn the rights of victims, and there are real victims in the cases that you may inquire about. I don't want to impugn on the rights of defendants. And so it would be irresponsible of me, and I'm not going to do that. That reminds me, you were willing to talk about the motion that you filed earlier today seeking uh, to expedite the motion to um, uh, put the discovery under seal. Um, I don't think you said this exactly, but are, can you say definitively to this audience and the internet audience that it was not your office that leaked those videos? It was absolutely not my office. You know, I just want to get open that on the record. records uh, request we got for that, and you know, told from the us. reporter, yes. From you and every other outlet. Um, no, we, we're not going to release information, which is why so long ago we filed that motion already. And now we're just asking that the judge rule on it, expedite it. And I would talk about that because that's a public record. It's sure. stamp filed. You have a copy of it. I think it's already on Twitter. We have a story online about it already. OK, there you go. <laughs> um, OK, this is something that I, I'm hoping you are willing to talk about a little bit. When do you think the, this election interference case will come to a conclusion? And let me add a little bit of detail before you answer. You have said March in the past. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of other cases out there that make that less feasible, to my mind. I don't know anything, but that's just what it seems like. It can't be March. Can you give us any clue what, when this would wrap up? Um, I mean, I think a case will be on appeals for years. Okay. But I think that um, in terms of, uh, I believe in that case there will be a trial. I believe the trial will take many months. And I don't expect that we will conclude until the winter or the very early part of 2025. So there's a possibility that defendants would be on trial up to including an election season, an election day, and maybe even an inauguration day? I don't, when making decisions about cases to bring, um, consider an election cycle or an election season. It does not go in the calculus. What goes in the calculus is, this is the law, these are the facts, and if the facts show you violated the law, then charges are brought. Um, I have heard that kind of what you're hinting at and going around. It would be a really sad. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know either. <laughs> uh, but it would be a really sad country. And when I, if I can get people to think about this logically, um, it, there's probably right now in the country, through all the prosecutor's offices, a million people right now under investigation, from everything from theft by shoplifting to entering an auto to murder. It would be a really sad day if, uh, when you're under investigation for this shoplifting charge, you could go run for city council, and then the investigation would stop. That, that's foolishness. And it's foolishness at any level. Um. And speaking more broadly about RICO cases generally, because you have so much experience prosecuting these, can the public get a sense or an expectation of 
how many, what the possibility is for how many of the original 19 defendants of a case, hypothetically speaking, uh, might not, might, might get plea deals and how many would be left to actually face a trial. And I, let's not talk about the election interference case, but when you're talking about, say, the Atlanta Public Schools case with the 30-plus original defendants, um, how many ultimately went to trial and, and is, do you, can it get all the way down to one? So in Atlanta Public Schools, I think that's a great case to, to talk about and use as an example because that's closed. Um, there were 35 defendants charged. Two of them unfortunately passed away, so that took us to 33 defendants. Um, Twelve of them went to trial, and the rest all took plea deals. Okay, we are close to the end here. I want to ask you one final question. Um, really for this audience, which is what, uh, what advice uh, would you give to young women who are trying to be heard and make a difference and have their voices heard? Um, well, that you can do anything, that you should not in any way limit yourself. Um, you should not think that this is a job that a man can do better. In fact, I think there are some innate skills in managing and leadership that women are really good at. Um, I think mothering helps us with that. I can tell you a scenario. Recently, an employee did something against what I told them to do, and I had three men in there advising me, fire them today, fire them, fire them, fire them. <laughs> and um, I decided to use another course that had discipline and, and redirection. And I think it is important that you do feed into your staff and you try to build them. Don't get me wrong, I will hold someone accountable and I'm more than strong enough to make hard decisions. But I don't think that sometimes our skills and the way that we react to things, people will try to make that that you are less than because of that. I would tell you that that's a secret power. Don't dim that light because you were female. Right? Don't, don't dim that light or think that your approach is the wrong approach. You should be very much authentically you, like you always get funny. I don't change no matter what room I'm in. And you should be comfortable enough in your own skin to be authentically you, to be a woman. It's okay to be pretty. It's okay to, you know, think of things that are feminine things and still be a strong leader. What a wonderful place to end this. Thank you so much. It has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us, D.A. Willis. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm anchor of the uh, Washington Post Early 202, and also, I'm sorry, co-author, and then anchor of Washington Post Live. And I'm so thrilled today to have Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Alaska, joining us this morning. Great uh, to be with you. Yeah, Senator Murkowski. Um, I want to start actually with your most recent re-election. Um, this was in 2022. I traveled to Alaska last year to cover your fascinating race. You have defied odds time and time again. Uh, this past election, you were up against someone who was challenging you from the right, uh, endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, but you once again won. Why do you think that is? Why are you a political survivor in a difficult environment? I come from a pretty independent state. Mm -hmm. We're conservative. We, when you look at the map, 
the political map, Alaska is, is always painted red. But our reality is, is that Alaskans look to the individual first. And that has been my identity. I, I am one who has been there for labor, for Alaska Natives, for, for independent women, um, and for the conservative, uh, you know, good old boys that are out there. Uh, maybe not as much in the latter camp, but, but it really has been um, just being true to myself, being true to Alaskans, and, and just standing up for, for what, what they have shared to me are, are their values of, of real independence. And so we come back here to Washington, D.C., and everything is so clearly defined. On, on partisan and, and really political lines. I think Alaska is just a little bit different. You look at what we put in place with, uh, with the initiative. We now have ranked choice voting. We eliminated our primaries. Um, and I think we have set ourselves in a place for other states to model as an example of how, how in one small way, you just might be able to, to break down some of these very, very, very partisan um, barriers that we have, have put up. The, the people you mentioned is a very interesting coalition. You talked about independent women. You talked about Alaska Natives. I've talked to so many Alaska Natives when I was there who, uh, who were also essential to you winning in 2010. Right. When you were, you lost your primary, mm -hmm. and then you became a write-in candidate, mm -hmm. where Alaskans had to spell Murkowski correctly Correct. in order for it to count, and Good story, and you did it. Mm -hmm. You were also wearing a bracelet. Can you talk to me? Because there was a bracelet campaign that began in 2010. What's the significance of that? That you still wear it today? So, you've you've named it in order. In order to survive a write-in, which is an absolutely unprecedented way, really, to gain election to, to a federal office, um, there, there had to be an education campaign that went along with it. So not only did I have to remind all Alaskans why they wanted to return me to the Senate, I also had to educate them on how you properly fill out a write-in ballot. And there was some question as to whether or not uh, incorrect spellings were going to be accepted. And so, because there was a question, there was no question in my mind that we just had to teach everybody how to spell it. It's only nine letters. You can do this. <laughs> but uh, we also had to remind people that you can spell it completely correct. But if you haven't filled in the little oval next to the line, it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And so we had this whole campaign, fill it in, write it in. But then we had to teach you how to spell it. Mm -hmm. So we had these cheap little plastic bracelets that said, fill it in, write it in, and then Lisa Murkowski, and uh, passed out thousands of them. So people were just wearing them all the time. 
Mm -hmm. And more importantly, they were able to wear them into the polling place oh. when they went to vote. You turn it over, Amazing. so there's no button, Cheat there's sheet. no nothing. You could have written it on your hand, which a lot of people did. Oh, I saw so many pictures about that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the, the, the gold bangle that I wear, so my husband took that one of those plastic bands, turned it into gold, so it says, fill it in, write it in, Lisa Murkowski. But I wear this, so I've worn this every single day since 2010 as a reminder to me that I was returned to this position by a very diverse group of Alaskans. I was not returned by my party. Mm -hmm. My allegiance, my loyalty, my, my focus, my bearing is, is really that very broad, very, some would say eclectic, I think it's just the great smorgasbord of Alaskans. And so being true to them rather yeah. than being true to a party is certainly where my comfort zone is. So, and that was in 2010. Yep. That was the height of the Tea Party movement. Mm -hmm. Since then, we have had a Donald Trump mm -hmm. uh, and the growth of a populist movement within the Republican Party. Um, and your voting record has reflected um, your independence, you voted present against uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, you voted to save President Obama's Affordable Care Act, and there's a long list of independent votes you've taken. So can you talk about what is the most difficult and challenging part about being this independent voice in the party today, which is a, a party that is evolving and changing? into something different, I should say. You don't come, or I, I, hope, I hope that nobody comes to a place like the United States Senate without, without a true desire to do right by the people that you represent. And, and so sometimes when you're kind of in this, this middle zone, uh, if you will, uh, you, you think to yourself, am I, am I really able to, to, to help in this position? Um, I have come to the place where I can say affirmatively yes, because what I'm trying, what I end up trying to do then is, is find others who are also not on the, not on the far margins of, of what, whether the Republicans or what the Democrats are trying to achieve, but really where you get into a middle where I think most people in this country are. Mm -hmm. most, on, on the issue of abortion, I don't think that most people in America are 100% all the time on one side or on the other, but, but clearly in a, in a space where, again, we are recognizing that woman's right to choose. Um, and and how, how we ensure that there are uh, that there are reasonable, um, uh, reasonable sideboards, I guess, uh, that, that most people in this country would say, yes, that's, that's where it's right. That's where it's right. And so ha having to find, working to find those, those individuals who, again, are not necessarily part of your party, mm -hmm. um, working partners, I think we've been able to demonstrate this in, in very specific measures, whether it was the infrastructure bill, whether it was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. I mean, there are, there are good places where we can land with legislation that, again, are going to be enduring, mm -hmm. 
because they're not entirely partisan. Do you worry that the center of elected officials are leaving politics? Yes. You have Mitt Romney. <laughs> yes. Joe Manchin. I, I'm, I'm telling you, every single one of them that makes their announcement just makes me, makes me sick um, because what they, what they bring to the table in terms of a willingness to sit down and try to work through some of these hard things. And then when you work it through, standing up to your party who says, that's not good enough. You didn't go far enough, or you went too far. And you have to say, you know, sometimes it's the Goldilocks seat. And, and, and that takes a little bit of a political backbone, too. So, Yes, I am very worried. I am very worried that what we are seeing is, is good people who have gotten discouraged because the process can be so, so just awful. I don't know of a more technical mm -hmm. term than awful. Yeah. And so they're leaving. And if the good people leave, when I say good people, the people that are willing to work in the middle, we know what we're going to be left with. It will be those that will be on, on the extremes of either side, and that doesn't benefit our country. Moving to a presidential election, yeah. it is very likely going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Why? <laughs> Seriously, why? There are so many incredible people in this country, so many who could lead this country, and we get a redo of 2020. I just don't understand why that has to be. If you are faced with a choice, which you will be, who will you back? Um, if I am faced with the choice of, of Biden or Trump, I can, I can definitely tell you that I will not support Donald Trump, and I don't believe that I can support Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. So where does that put? Where does that put us? Where does that put us? Yeah. We have to say that we can do better than this. I know people are so afraid of a third party. So are uh, you pushing Joe Manchin to run for president as either a third party or in some other capacity? I think that Joe Manchin would be a great president. Mm -hmm. I worry, as, as others have said, and I know because we've had this conversation, I know that he worries that what happens in a third party candidacy, does that throw it to, to Trump? Does that throw it to Biden? What does it do? I, I get that. I get that. But you know what? If we take the view in this country that the only way, the only way that you can win is if you are the Republican nominee or the Democrat nominee and a third party never, ever, 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 ever has a chance all right, it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Everybody said, there's no way, there is no way on God's green earth that you can win a write-in. We did. You know, at some point in time, it's got to be okay to maybe shake up the status quo a little bit. I know that that's, that's probably political heresy. Do you think Joe Manchin's going to do it? I, I don't know. I I really, really, really do not know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, we're seeing others step forward and, and put their name out there. Um, 
that makes for a lot of splits, and that's where it gets really dicey when you're trying to predict the outcome of an election. I want to ask you about women in the Senate. Yeah. Um, there's a, I think it's a record this year or last year, number of women in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I know you're close with Senator Susan yeah. Collins. Can you talk about, um, as the number of women in the Senate has grown, have the women been able to maintain some sort of close relationship? I know everything's partisan, but even is there some post-partisanship in, in those relationships? Yeah. I think that there is. We do, um, uh, we do somewhat regular uh, gatherings where uh, one of the women will host a, uh, a dinner um, whether it's at the Capitol or at a restaurant or occasionally at somebody's home. Um, there's different gatherings, again, that we try to come together as the women of the Senate. And the thing that's so refreshing and just so good is there's no agenda mm -hmm. and there's no staff. And as Barbara Mikulski would say, there's no notes. <laughs> um, we just gather together and enjoy one another's company. And I think that is important. It's good for the soul. We all have hard jobs. Um, it's good to be able to just kind of come together and sometimes just complain about some of the yeah. people that you work with or the process. All the men. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you said that, not me. But, uh, but yeah, I think that things like that are important because you're building relationships. And when you have a relationship with a person, it's a lot harder. To, to condemn them, uh, to try to just be nasty publicly. Mm -hmm. um, relationships are important, and it doesn't make any difference what level of, of, of governance you're in. The House of Representatives is going to vote today on mm -hmm. a, um, a stopgap funding bill to extend government funding past Friday. Parts of it until January, parts of it until February. The Senate's probably going to take it up if it passes. So how will you vote? Do you think this is a good idea? And what are your concerns? I don't think it's a good idea to have the, the dates separated um, based on which appropriations account you are in. Um, I'm concerned about the length of time uh, that this um, that this initiative gives. Uh, I am in the camp of wanting a short-term clean CR soon. I like the idea of, of December 8th. Mm. It forces us to get to work now, actually yesterday, to resolve uh, the, the very complicated and very serious and very timely issues that we're seeing in Israel, in Ukraine. We've got border you, that we have to do. Do you worry that, that Ukraine aid is yes. not going to pass? I Again. am greatly worried that we're going to take the focus off or allow the focus to be taken off of a very, very critical time in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's We're approaching winter yeah. over there. It's going to get tough. If Putin sees that the United States is kind of relaxed on our support here, why? what's to say that he doesn't just put his foot on the gas and, and really, really go aggressively um, against Ukraine during, during these months. Support for Ukraine, in my view, 
is absolutely, absolutely unequivocal. Yeah. So I'm very worried about this. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to have a shutdown. There is no value. There is no, nobody wins in a shutdown. So yeah. at least we're all in agreement that we don't want a shutdown. So, okay, we've got something in common. But I am concerned about the length of time for this CR, that it takes the pressure off. And in that interim, mm -hmm. in that interim, support for Ukraine continues to erode. I want to, um, we're almost out of time, so I do want to ask you about your father, um, who held the seat before you. Uh, what political lessons did you learn from him, or more importantly, would he be surprised with the politician you are today, or the person you are today as a as an elected member of the Senate. Well, you know, we have we have very different approaches, very very different st very different styles. He's kind of a grumbly bear, and I figure <laughs> I am able to uh, get my way into to, to most conversations by not being a grumbly bear. Um, <laughs> but he has shared that he is he's very proud of my independence. He, um, He's very passionate about Alaska issues, and I certainly share that same yeah. passion, and that that uh, has manifested itself, I think, in in the support that I've received around the state. But uh, uh, every now and again, he'll make some comment, kind of a comment about, "Well, I wouldn't have done it that way, but you're doing okay." <laughs> so at 90 years old, he's got a lot of time to reflect, and um, it. Uh, it, it is a different different style, most definitely, but we're um, doing okay. So we are out of time, but I have to ask you, Mitt Romney eats your Alaska salmon with ketchup. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> like the best wild seafood in the world. Which it is, yes. It is, and he puts it on a bun with ketchup. I, I really love Mitt Romney, I do. But I do question his eating <laughs> style. But, uh, will you stop giving him Alaska salmon? No. What I will do is I will make sure that I've cooked it for him ahead of time oh. so that it's beautifully prepared as, as it should, should be, be. And he won't have to put ketchup on it. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Murkowski, thank you so much for your time today. You. I really appreciate it. Good to be back with you. Yes. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.